Welcome to The Deep Dive. I'm your host, Philip McKenzie. I'm an anthropologist strategist with a focus on culture and humanity-centered design. I'm Brooklyn-born and Brooklyn-made. Every week, I will bring you guests from a wide variety of backgrounds who, despite their different areas of expertise, share traits in common. They aim high, push boundaries, and make things happen. Their experiences drive insights. On today's episode of The Deep Dive, I'm joined by Joshua Myers. Joshua is an associate professor of Africana Studies in the Department of Afro-American Studies at Howard University. As listeners would know, my overly proud alma mater. He is the author of Of Black Study. He's also the author of Cedric Robinson, The Time of the Black Radical Tradition, and We Are Worth Fighting For, a history of the Howard University student protests of 1989 that happened a year before I joined, before I came on campus. And he's also the editor of A Gathering Together, a literary journal. His next book is called Holy Ghost Key, and it will be released February 2024. And I want to thank you, Josh, for joining us on The Deep Dive. You're, you're coming early in the morning to record this, so I, I really appreciate it. How are you, brother? My pleasure. Thanks for the invitation. It's always good to be I'm in conversation with someone from your generation of Howard. Absolutely. <laughs> My favorite generation. <laughs> <laughs> and the turn up generation. There you go. <laughs> there you go, man. You know, I, I wasn't planning to talk about this, right? Because I talk about Howard so much on this show yes. that folks be like, yo, man, you got to chill with all that Howard shit. You know? Yeah. And I'm always like, man, come on. Howard is awesome. <laughs> and, and, it's all jokes, right? Like when I was young and, and fiery, you know, it was like a rivalry where you went to school, you know. Now I'm just like, man, just yeah. go to school. I don't, I don't, or or not. Just, <laughs> you know, I've also gotten to that part of my evolution. You don't have to, but if you do, go wherever you want to and have a good time and learn some shit and come out and, and be radicalized, right? <laughs> like no matter you, where you yes. go. But tell me why it's your your favorite time, your favorite era of of Howard. I'm curious. It's something about the convergence of the hip hop generation and their political radicalism that's just deeply inspiring for that moment. You know, it was a time when you see what we might call Reaganomics or uh, what academics might call the neoliberal era is, you know, in the ascendant and you have the end of the Cold War and you have anti-apartheid movement and all these things are happening and it's just, you see that political uh, response filtered through hip hop and it's beautiful. And Howard was a place where you had all of that happening at the same time. And it is actually the students who transformed the culture of the institution in that moment, um, hopefully for the better. Absolutely. You know, it's funny because I've thought about this even before this conversation. Like, I've never thought about Howard in that in that context, but this is a complete divergence from my notes, by the way. So I'm totally just like <laughs> freestyling right now. But you but you said something to me just now that that has triggered like a conversation that I've had with friends, not just friends that went to Howard, but just generally as we've talked about this seemingly like I won't call it a chasm. But it's something like there's a gap between those black folks that kind of didn't intrinsically come up with hip hop as their music and those that did. Right. And and it's a narrow band of time. Right. So I haven't like fully fleshed this out, but I think about like my sister's five years older than me. Right. So she never caught on to hip hop. Right. Like she just mm-hmm. missed like when I was sitting in the audience and I first heard Planet Rock. It did nothing for her, but it like blew my mind, right? Like Sucker MCs, all of that was like the first time. And I always say this about hip hop. Like it was my music. Like it wasn't my parents' music. It wasn't even my older sister's music. It was intrinsically my music, right? And so how this comes up and connects to Howard and that generation that I think missed that a little bit is I think about someone like an Obama who didn't go to Howard, but he's like, that half a generation older and and someone like a Kamala Harris, right? Who was literally on campus in the mid eighties. And I started on campus yeah. in 1990. And I feel like they also missed that, right? Like in 1986, that was pre, it takes a nation of millions to hold us back, right? And you were already 20 or 21. When I heard that record, I was 14. 
You know what I mean? And so it, it like hip hop uh-huh. radicalized me, right? Like hip hop got me yes. to Howard, you know, a, 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 hip hop, yes. Spike Lee, school days, you know, the Cosby show. I know we can't say the Cosby show in public anymore, but the Cosby show, a different world. Those were the things that got me to Howard. My family are West Indians. We didn't, they didn't go to school here. Right. So anyway, I'm, I'm curious what you think about my like off the cuff <laughs> theory as to why they don't seem to be as like, you know, I'm not going to say pro-black, but they missed that. Right. Poor righteous teachers wasn't really in their vocabulary. <laughs> well, yeah, you know, so the hip hop scholars would say that there's a golden age. Right. And I don't know if you know I, I totally accept that framing, but there is something too. The year that you just mentioned, like 87, 88, there's a turn, if you will, that converges with them speaking very directly to the questions of the political order in in the music. And it's interesting because one of the things I write about and we are worth fighting for is that there's actually a conference at Howard in 1987. Amiri Baraka, Mutabaruka, and Tumi are on a panel and they basically, and Public Enemy is in the audience. <laughs> and Sister Soul Drive think it's in the audience. And they basically are saying, at least Baraka and, and Mutabaruka are saying, it's like, you all aren't activist enough, or you all aren't organizing enough. <laughs> and Bill Stephanie gets up and says, well, we, we're, we're musicians. But that seemingly, and Jeff Chang writes about this in Can't Stop, Won't Stop too. but that moment seemingly suggests a kind of divergence but what happened right after that? It takes a nation, <laughs> comes out, right? And so there's there's like that moment. And I think that's the huge part too. Yeah, it's interesting to really think back on those days because, you know, Howard also has the bougie element, right? Like it it also has like the establishment element. And I remember fall of, of that freshman year when I'm really like, you know, my mind is like blown, dude, by everything, right? Like, you know, you 17 on right. a college campus, you think you know everything, you know nothing, but everything's exciting. And um, Kwame Ture came back on campus to speak at um, Blackburn, Stokely Carmichael for, for, you know, popularly known, you know, before changing his name. And dude, I, I had to go to that, right? Because Stokely Carmichael slash Kwame Ture was the dude that I saw on like Eyes on the Prize, right? Like, that was a must-go-to kind of lecture for me. And, I, you know, I bought that tape afterward, like, you know, all them old school things. And, but, you know, he, he would have said in the 60s that, that the campus wasn't radical enough, right? And so there's always, it seems like that, that push-pull yin-yang between the establishment, whatever the establishment means at a particular given time, and those who are, asking for a more radical tradition. And you're on campus now. I'm, I'm sure you're feeling and seeing some of that same energy maybe manifesting in a, in a different way. So I'm curious about, about that. And then we'll get, get into the book. <laughs> yeah, that's always there. And I wouldn't say it's baked into the project of Howard University, but sometimes it feels like that, <laughs> that there's going to be those two sides. In fact, Teray writes in his autobiography that Howard is everything Black and is opposite. <laughs> <laughs> At any given moment, Howard is everything black and its opposite. <laughs> That's a perfect synopsis. <laughs> it is. And so we're experiencing that right now. Our students come expecting a particular kind of Howard. Some read it through the lens of the finishing school for the black elite. This is why I'm here. Others are like, well, there are things happening in the black community that we need to not only be aware of, but be actively participating in transforming. <laughs> And Howard should be giving me tools to do that. And then you have everything in between. <laughs> no, man, it's, 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 it's fascinating. You know, I, I, I could talk about Howard all day. I'm literally rocking a Howard sweatshirt even as we record this, because that is my fall and winter uniform, varying shades of, of Howard gear. Um, so, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I want to get into Of Black Study, which... You know, I actually discovered the book on on Twitter, like someone in my followers or someone I follow, like um, tweeted about the book and, and they had some quotes and I was reading them and I was like, yo, I got a who the fuck is this? And um, <laughs> and, and, and I, I li- like that's how I discover stuff. Like people ask me all the time, like, where do you find your guest? And 
it happens anywhere and at any time. It's very organic. You know, like I don't got people just zinging me stuff, right? Like I got to find it. And so shout out to whoever on Twitter was reading your book on a, on a random Saturday. Um, but when just those quotes alone got me to like, I was like, okay, let me look up the author and blah, blah, blah. I did all that stuff. Then I, then I think I, I sent you a note like shortly thereafter, right? Like, and um, luckily for me, you were receptive to being on the show. So, you know, of Black Study is, is such a rich look at the Black radical tradition through the lens of particularly four seminal thinkers. But I, I want to give you an opportunity to you just share a little bit about what prompted you to kind of dive into a look at the academy in this way, because the book is 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 passionate. You know, I don't I, I can't really come up with a better word to describe the language from the from the first opening lines. I'm like, yo, somebody's on somebody's on it right now. That's somebody's you. <laughs> so give me some some insight into kind of the beginnings of this process. Yeah, first, firstly, thank you. And it's not taken for granted that you're able or that you were able to catch that about me. Because, you know, I don't assume that uh, folk will see that in the work and is very intentionally put there for people to see it. And so I just want to say thank you for deep and intimate reading of it. Second thing I want to say is that, you know, things often live on Twitter in ways I don't understand. And sometimes, you know, it's <laughs> it's a little bit, I'm wary of it a little bit. In fact, this is my year anniversary of leaving Twitter <laughs> around this time last year, right after the World Series, I decided I'm, I'm done with Twitter. But it's also the case that so many people have um, discovered my, my work and thinking um, because of Twitter. Almost every podcast that I've been on <laughs> is because of social media and Twitter and people who have presence in those particular spaces and who've learned how to navigate those spaces in ways that help our people, which is not easy. And so thank you for for that, too, because someone needs to be there if it's not me. <laughs> someone needs to be, you know, using those using the, using those medium in a, in a positive and enlightening way. Um, so I deeply appreciate that as well. As far as the project, so this project is long in the making. I started this really in earnest in 2014. And the idea was to really situate the discipline of Black studies, the discipline founded by students in the 1960s. And uh, we are almost um, 60 years um, in existence since the students sort of opened the door for that possibility in the academy, which had never really existed in an organized form. There's an elder who participated in that work who's just written a book called The History of Black Studies. It's also by Pluto Press, but his name is Abdul Akalamad. And he's, he chronicles what it took for us to actually <laughs> create something new in the Western university. Black people create something new in the Western university that has now lasted for almost 60 years. And so when I encountered this larger question in graduate school, and I got my PhD in, Afri in African-American studies at, from Temple, um, but I did my undergrad at Howard University as well, right? So when I went to Temple, I wanted to really think about following my direct uh, influence and mentor, Greg Kamathi Carr, who still is at Howard, uh, my colleague now. What does it mean to us to actually practice Africana studies? And what does it look like? What are the methods? Like, what do you mean by it, really? <laughs> Which is something that, you know, we think is self-evident, but it's really not self-evident. I can recall earlier this year when the AP and DeSantis and the AP course and DeSantis and the controversy, the media catches on and the media basically says, oh, it's just Black history. No, it's not just Black history. <laughs> if it was, it would be easier. <laughs> but it's not just that simple. And so it is a way of thinking about the world. And that's where the passion and the writing for me comes from, because I'm trying to inspire people to think differently, not just, you know, tell them their history or just reveal contributions that Black people made to humanity. That's part of it. But it's also, how do we be different? How do we think differently? How do we deal with the Carter Woodson calls the miseducation of our people. And why is the miseducation of our people rooted in the structures 
intellectually and otherwise that govern the world that is also killing us, right? It's connected. These things are connected. And so that's where the sort of the urgency and the passion comes from. But of course, that wouldn't have been enough. And so I had to study and research and develop these ideas first. And so that's why it took me so long. My dissertation project was the preliminary step. But I realized that I had to reformulate that a lot. <laughs> and I decided to reformulate it by using um, a form of biography. So I'm, I'm also experimenting in, in biographical writing in this book. And so the Cedric Robinson book that came out actually before this one was basically based on the Cedric Robinson chapter in Of Black Study. Because I had written that chapter before I wrote the full biography that came, that actually precedes it in terms of publication, which is kind of how things work. We are often working on things simultaneously. So when that biographical writing sort of unfurled, it was because of how I teach. When I introduce a topic or a textbook that we're doing in class, I often spend time with students thinking about who the person is behind this writing, or who the, who's the person behind this this article. And I realized that that was very effective. That was a very effective way to introduce people to the broad topic is understand how this scholar, this writer, this organizer came to possess the knowledge that they possess about the world. And I translated that teaching into the writing of this particular book as a way to tell this larger story of what our relationship as Black Studies thinkers and practitioners is to the structures of knowledge themselves, structures of knowledges. And so that's where the attempt to read this through the lens of those four figures, really those six figures, really comes from. It's, it's an insistence on us looking at people, but looking at people who have these more expansive and broader ideas and how they come to those ideas which is a fascinating thing to do, but it's also an urgent thing for us to do with Black intellectuals because Black intellectuals aren't just created, you know, out of thin air. They come from somewhere, and we need to think about that. You know, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned six folks in the book because I, there's a later question where I, I, I talk about how it's, the book is it's how it's bookended, right? So you, you introduce it with talking about June Jordan pulling out, her work, and you close it on the other side with Tony Cade Bambara talking and reflecting on her work and how it kind of fits it all together. So one of my questions, which I thought we'd get to at the end, but I want to get to it now since you mentioned the six, I don't want to, I don't want to short the sisters and their representation in this book. Why did you choose their, them in particular as, as thinkers and scholars to sort of bookend this thinking? This is a great question because, you know, I needed, I want to use a word like permission because these are, they're both ancestors, but they were also principally involved in the origin story in the Academy of Black Studies. They were both City College and they were working with students. They were doing some of the things that I'm trying to do at Howard. And I needed their blessing in many ways to not just tell this story or their story, but to remind us where Black Studies comes from. I needed them for that process. And I also must say that I'm growing in my own aspiration to be a writer writer, not just an academic writer. And June and Tony were just beautiful writers, beautiful in their facility with language and style, but also beautiful in terms of their urgent, political, radical demands of the word. And so how do I inspire myself and others through their commitment. It's kind of where I was, what I was thinking about as it relates to Black Studies. And so something that happens in Black Studies today is we kind of forget the role of artists, poets, novelists in the origin story of Black Studies. And another name that I should mention, again, who had a, has a really important relationship to Howard University, though she never taught there, but Sonia Sanchez is also in this as well. And so... Tony, K.A. Bambara, June Jordan, um, Sonia Sanchez, it's impossible to really tell the story of Black studies without these poets and writers. And so that's kind of where it comes from, too. It's, like, it's not just people who are in the archives or creating studies. It's also the people who are dealing with the word and dealing with the word very seriously in this Black studies tradition. 
so that's why uh, the book is book ended uh, with these two really important and I think visionary black women. I mean, when you when you talk about how they use the written word and, you know, being a writer, writer. Right. Because there's you know, there's some books that you read that are filled with information, not particularly well written. All right. <laughs> like like, you know, it's a, it's a slog to get to get through them. Right. Like I think about Noam Chomsky, for example. Right. Like, yo, that dude's a terrible writer. Right. Like in like in, in my opinion. Right. Like I, I've always felt he was a no. he was a terrible writer, but lots of ideas in there. But I'm just like, oh, my God, this is like torture getting getting. I'd, I'd much rather hear him talk even in his current Gandalf stage. I'd much rather hear him talk. Right. <laughs> um, yeah. But when you when you when you cite that their particular use of language and how impactful and just beautifully crafted it is. It's, I tell people like when I read really good writing, like it makes me wince, you know, it's like that, it's that scene in Friday where they, Debo knocks that dude out there like, Ooh, you know, that's how, (laughs) that's how I feel when I read somebody who can write, kill it. And I'd be like, you know, like you just wince, like you watching a fight or something like that. So I, I definitely feel you on on that energy and, and you bring a lot of that energy to it, brother. So you're closer than you might think. Um, you know, but there's a there's a particular June Jordan quote that I wrote down. Kind of, so I'm going to circle back to the top of the page now where and, and I think I wrote this okay. in, in full, you know, it, it references that black studies is about bringing back the person. You know, and you started there, like I, I believe it's in the first paragraph or maybe at least the first page. So that that really struck me, this this idea of bringing back the person, because if you're if you're starting there with such a, a forceful entry point, there has to be like a why behind that. And so I, I wanted to kind of go a little deeper into that. Why? Yeah. So the why is that I use that article every semester to open up my classes. It is the quote from that article where she says that we are the primary sources of information, meaning black people are the primary sources of information in black studies, which sounds again, self-evident, but you will be surprised how many people are uncomfortable with the notion that we can start with ourselves and read the rest of the world and understand the rest of the world at the same time, (laughs) right? So June Jordan, when she said, when she wrote that, she was basically articulating what was happening at City College when students who had been previously, and for many different reasons, excluded from City College, when they got to the university, they did not forget who they were, but the university kind of asked them to forget. And they said, no, we're bringing back our person. Are we coming with our person? And this notion of a kind of um, disembodied education where there's just, again, this information gathering and we're preparing you to enter into a workforce with objective data and knowledge and all of the things that, you know, the university says that it's doing in that kind of technocratic age of the 1960s. Jordan says, what happens when we bring back the person? We're educating human beings, right? We're not just disseminating information because that's what these students, that's why they resisted. That's why they revolted because they wanted to be educated as wholly, fully people, human beings in the world. And, this is where the bringing back the person uh, comes from. And it's something that, you know, was increasingly um, out of style in that technocratic age, this notion of, you know, centering human possibilities and human desires as necessary components of a full and holistic approach to education or even tailoring, right, how we think about these major questions of human existence to the actual specific environments that people actually come from. What does it mean for someone from the Bronx or from Brooklyn to go to City College in Harlem, right? And then have their experiences foregrounded in the curriculum, right? Not just marginalized or not just seen as, well, you've made it to college, therefore you're no longer from Brooklyn. You're you're gonna change who you are. No, you can't change me. And so you change. You change what you teach. You change how you teach. You change how you see me. This is the radical demand of those students, Um, Black students, Puerto Rican students, who are part of this uprising that June is ultimately inspired by and writing to in that article. You know, when I was reading the book, 
there's several times when I had to like put it down and kind of like reflect on the meaning and the intent in in some of the stories shared as you were kind of shaping these histories. And what I mean by that is like you're taking on, I, I took it as a taking on this notion of the academy, right? The reality of living life in a academic slash intellectual institution of, of higher education, right? Shorthand, the academy. And how our presence merely by deign of being there can be seen as quote unquote radical, but it doesn't mean that just because we are there that it is radical, right? And that the the university or the academy has a has an a way of co-opting even those spaces that joined it with the intention of being radical, right? So it it read to me like very frustrating, right? In sort of the way that we started the conversation that people will think of Howard in one in one dimension and others will think about it in another. Maybe both of those things are true at the same time, right? So I'm I'm curious how you pulled that apart, right? Because you made also very clear distinctions, like like how we started in this conversation. You know, black studies is is not the same as like black history is not the same as black studies, right? You point out very clearly like this is not about diversity, equity, and inclusion, right? All of these things are distinct, but they're all very much connected in this story. And it seems like it always has been. Right. So I'm, I'm, I don't know if I worded that question well or I just went on a rant, but I'm, I'm, I'm trying to pull apart these very complex ideas, which seem to live in different places at the same time, if that makes sense. It makes perfect sense, because what you're, what you're articulating is the distinction of the choice and the choices that people make once they enter. So June has this idea that when we enter, when we enter the gates, the gates that it formerly excluded us, right? What do we do, right? And so some of us, you know, she has. In fact, Tony K says this. Tony K. Bombara says this as well. It's like some of us sort of accept the terms of the gates. Whatever you say, we'll do, <laughs> and that becomes the diversity, equity, and inclusion project. And the university needs that, not to you know transform Black people's lives or marginalize people's lives, but to remain in power. That's what diversity and inclusion is about, right? And so others who did not make choices like that then become people that the university tries to contain and control. They can't get rid of all of us at one time or, or, or at least at the same time. And so they try to control and contain it. And what I sort of lament in the opening passage of, passages of the book is that some of us have forgotten what it means to take those kinds of risks of being different and thinking about something beyond stabilizing the university as it is. But Black studies came because somebody took a risk. Black studies came because somebody resisted the sort of inclusion project that maintained a stabilized power. And so Black studies was in a, was in a direct assault against it. And I think you're right um, in your estimation that this is in many ways antagonistic to the notion of um, the academy, because the academy has to be transformed for us in, for, in order for us to use. This is the story of Howard, too, right? Every moment that Black people in the United States face some upheaval, there's a demand on Howard, right? And the students make the demand on Howard. It's not just the 60s or not just the 80s. It's also the 20s. It's also the 30s. It's also the 40s. In fact, anytime something happens, <laughs> there's a demand that Howard be different, there's a man that Howard be not the black Harvard or be not the black Yale. No, be something for black people. <laughs> and so that's, again, a direct correlation to the notion that we have to struggle within and against often uh, the academy because the academy is a domain of knowledge production. And so the world is stru structured by knowledge production. And so black life is structured by knowledge production. Whose knowledge is get produced, in other words, is important. In that co-option piece that I mentioned, when you talk about Du Bois, and again, the book is framed, you know, we have the bookends that we've kind of alluded to a little bit. And then there, there's four, like I said, seminal thinkers in, included as, as you kind of chart this story of Black studies in a, in a more radical tradition. And, you know, W.E.B. Du Bois, Sylvia Winter, 
Jacob H. Carruthers and, and Cedric Robinson that, you know, he's come up already. And in the Du Bois section of in the book, you reference how there was a, a, almost like a reclamation of Du Bois as he was sort of given like a, a honorary chair at some university that previously didn't hire him. So I, I can't remember the university, but I'm sure you you know what I'm alluding to, right? You you kind of pull apart like how they can take a figure like Du Bois, like would Du Bois have wanted this, right? Kind of thing, right? <laughs> like was this the culmination of what he would have seen as success, as being in the fight for our people? Was was teaching being chair at whatever university was that the end goal, right? And I, and I thought, again, that was one of those put the book down moments, right? Because I was thinking to some folks, yeah, that is, that is the, <laughs> the end goal, right? Which then made me think about like, is to what extent is that okay, right? Is that is that intrinsically wrong? Is it, does it depend? You know, like it just brought up a lot of those ideas around what is assimilation, right? What is... And I'm just talking from a more practical level, right? Like, and not every kid is going to go to HBCU, right? I chose to because it was a very political decision for me at that time, right? Because of all the things we talked about sort of at the beginning. But some folks make a different choice with their with their academic or their work environment or whatever, and they're in the fight too, right? So I, I just really was thinking about how the reclaiming can also co-opt and how do we understand the goals of not just the four folks featured, but other thinkers like yourself, past and present and future. Like, how do you like capture some of that? Again, in one of my ramble, trying to pull all this together, statements slash questions. <laughs> yeah. So the university in question is the University of Pennsylvania. And it's an important case because I want listeners to sort of think about how they might feel about this. The brothers, Takufu Zuberi, probably the leading figure in this effort, you know, is a sociologist, teaches in the Africana Studies Department at the University of Pennsylvania. He's actually a comrade of Kwame Ture's. Um, he was, a, he was I believe he was cadre in all African people's revolutionary party. But Brother Zuberi and others decided that the best way to honor Du Bois was to basically appoint him to the faculty at UPenn posthumously. The idea was to correct a historical wrong because Du Bois's first job after, well, not his first job, <laughs> his first job was at NHBCU, Wilberforce in Ohio. Um, but soon after, he is hired to be an assistant and develop the study that eventually becomes the Philadelphia Negro. And I don't know what the, the actual title was, but it wasn't professor. It was maybe an assistant researcher or something like that. But he had, he had a PhD by then. In fact, he's the first African-American to get a PhD from Harvard. And so the idea that you would not appoint him to the faculty as someone with the PhD and the research skills that you were employing him to do this particular study was, of course, a slap in the face. But Du Bois spends the balance of his academic career at Atlanta University in subsequent years, uh, where he was, at the very least, appointed to the faculty and had res- had resources, not enough, but had resources um, to continue this, this, this work, this early social science Black studies work. And so what does it mean to then go back in time? I'm sitting in 2012 at this, at this point. I'm, I'm actually at the conference where they, where they announced this to go back in time and say that, well, we'll make you a posthumous member of the faculty of the University of Pennsylvania. And it begs the question, this is what I want people to think about, had Du Bois been given in his own time, right, in 1897, <laughs> the appointment as faculty at University of Pennsylvania, does he ever come to an HBCU and do the work that he's supposed to do? In other words, as you say, what is success? Is it, well, we got a Black professor at UPenn, or is it we have a Black professor at Atlanta that conducts the Atlanta University studies for almost 10 years and develops the foundation for how to do Black studies? Could he have done that at Penn? It's the question. And I think we know the answer to that, brother. I think we know that what would have happened is he would have experienced microaggressions, he would have experienced marginalization, he would have probably 
died at an early age from all of the stress. Like, we know what would happen because we know what happens to us yeah. now in those spaces. All the blackness. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, again, it, we should really question that. So that's what I was kind of doing in that part of the book. Who does, do, and it's, it's a larger question is who, do, who does Du Bois belong to? Right. Because sociologists are fighting over him. Historians are fighting over him. And I'm sitting over here like, well, black studies doesn't have to fight over him because he actually (laughs) says who he is. Right. (laughs) Over and over and over again. And so he says, you know, early on, you know, he's an HBCU grad, too. He went to Fisk in Nashville. And he said, you know, I I come from Great Barrington, Massachusetts. There's black people there. I got a black family. But then I go south and I see black people. Right. And I see how black people live in the South. And he says, no, this, he says, henceforward, I am a Negro after going to Fisk. (laughs) It all all comes together. (laughs) (laughs) I want to stick with with that because I I jotted down like this idea of, of recognition versus revolution, right? Because I think it also begs the question of who does that posthumous appointment help, right? Like who's aided by that? being done, right? Because it is, you know, like you said, the intention might be to correct a historical wrong, but beyond that, like who looks good for doing that? Is it University of Pennsylvania? Is it kind of glomming on to Du Bois's legacy for work you didn't support? It it was really like a a troubling portion of of the book for me, right? Not because it made me feel bad, but just in like how this is, it seems like a reoccurring story, right? And it's that ownership of Black studies, I, I guess, is what I'm trying to get at. And um, it feels very much like an incomplete project in many ways. Not the Black studies portion, but the ownership portion. Like, you you, you go to great pains to kind of talk about the, the natural, natural is my word, I don't know if you refer to it as being a natural thing in the book, but this, this way in which Black studies, by its very nature, has to be interdisciplinary. Right. It touches everything and all things because you're trying to re- rethink or recreate worlds or create worlds through this particular lens of, of the of the black condition. And I'm curious about about how you see that project and that ownership of it and that interdisciplinary piece of it, like how all of those things seem to come together to make it both attractive to be owned but also elusive in some ways. I would say it's beyond disciplines. Like it's beyond the conceptual logical disciplines because disciplines are natural, right? And so somebody decided to create sociology and anthropology and political science and so on and so forth. These are natural categories for human knowing. They assert themselves to be, which forces us to then say, well, human beings are complex. So let's look at these things to look at reality through. An interdisciplinary list. It's like, wait a minute, interdisciplinary requires disciplinarity first. <laughs> and so I think Black Studies even has to go beyond that, right? To say, well, what is human knowing for Black people, for peoples of African descent? Like, what is it? Is it categorized in the way that we would have a natural category like sociology or a natural category like anthropology, right? But that takes us far beyond what the academy knows how to contain and control, which also makes it very dangerous. And so it's good danger because we have to get out of these straitjackets. <laughs> I think that's how you can appreciate the Du Bois at the end of the day. So instead of fighting over whether he belongs to social or history, let's just say he belongs to Black people and then start from there. <laughs> and I think that's where the sort of radical evolution from that ends up with Sylvia Windsor and Carruthers and Robinson, that's where it was all going. Because... Nobody's fighting over where those three belong. It's very clear <laughs> where they belong. <laughs> and it's not, a, it's not a Western discipline. And I think, you know, some might argue that Winter is a philosopher. Maybe we'll talk about that later. But the Academy, one of the, ones I wanna, one of the things I want to say is that the Academy only recognizes when it's safe to recognize. It's almost like akin to, like in the United States, when we name things after the indigenous people that we vanquished, or I shouldn't claim that we, they, <laughs> they name things after the indigenous people. We have very little role in that. <laughs> <laughs> that they vanquished. And so Mississippi, Tennessee is like, wait a minute, these are indigenous peoples that were, okay, 
so you name yourself, right? You literally recognize the space as the thing that was disappeared from the space. That's kind of what we see when you have, you know, a Du Bois Center at Harvard. Like you, you disappeared him for years and then you reclaim him, but then reclaim only parts that are safe, <laughs> the parts that are legible. <laughs> the things that reinforce the story you want to tell, right? It's it's very much like, um, you know, you mentioned the indigenous and the naming and, you know, I, I'm in New York, famously in New York, as I talk about again all the time. And, you know, greater New York and getting out into Long Island filled with names, like all of Long Island is filled with names of, of, of indigenous, right? You know, the, the original folks who, who held that, that space. And one of the grossest things that I reflect on is how so much of um, American military empire co-ops also indigenous names, you know, for their, for their weapons, right? For their tools of, of empire and destruction, right? So it's like the land, which is an American, has still holds indigenous name. And then the violence that America does is transported through like Black Hawk, you know, and Apache helicopters and all kinds of really terrible things. It's, it's absolutely disgusting. And then you put them in a museum and this becomes, these people are so gentle and courageous and beautiful. I don't know if you've ever been to the to the parts of these museums. Now, notwithstanding the National Museum of the American Indian, which is actually run by indigenous people, and you see the difference there. But if you go to the National Gallery of Art or the mainstream museums, and you look at the section on the indigenous, it's almost like we revere the people that we think that we liquidated. It's like really, <laughs> it's like a whole American tradition. Yeah, we're still in that <laughs> noble savage, right? And um, <laughs> their their language, not mine, right? And also you have like the, again, we were talking about the like DEI project. When they use those, like they have a conference somewhere and they'd be like, we're on the land of the insert indigenous name people here. We want to call forward. I'm like, motherfucker, you don't even have no people here to talk <laughs> from these communities, right? I'm in Canada where they're good for that. The land acknowledgement. Yeah, they love that. But you have more indigenous people here in Canada with a really strong pushback. Nana Najma needs to come with something else, reparations, something. There needs to be more. You know, I have a lot of Canadian friends. I love, you know, I got family in Canada, you know, typical West Indian story. But just a quick aside, you know, Canadians love to play that like we're like the benign white people. Right. Like they yes. they love that. Right. Like, <laughs> oh, we're so you Americans are crazy. We're our crazy racist neighbors to the south. I'm like, man, y'all better pray we don't keep digging up more more bodies of indigenous that y'all murdered. <laughs> for years and hid, right? Like, stop it. You're just colder. <laughs> You're no less racist, right? Like, there's no benign, there's no benign settler colonialism. <laughs> not at all, right? So recognize Canada. <laughs> You're on notice. <laughs> we're not, <laughs> we're not letting you get by with the crunchy granola benignness anymore, right? You're cool people. Y'all got a lot of good bands up there too, but. Y'all be on some fuck shit with your racism. <laughs> um, I want to I want to talk about this notion, and, but real quick, Sylvia Winter. Before I, I jump into something else, because um, I am keeping an eye on the time, brother, for you. She's actually a thinker that I've only gotten acquainted with over I'll call it the last five to seven years. And again, okay. through Twitter, like somebody was mentioning her work, and I was like, "Who the fuck is this?" And I started like digging up as much as I could find. And there are some really good, like collected editions of her work that are available, right? So I, I just got everything that I that I possibly could. And it, it actually makes me reflect a little bit. And this is not part of your book, but I think this anecdote might be instructive to this next concept, which you you highlight, which is like a remembering, right? And you wrote it in the book. So I'm trying to illustrate this for the listener, it's not written. I'm saying it remembering, but you wrote it differently to just, it's different from just remembering, you know, and you, and you use this very specifically, this, this term. And it made me reflect on not just Sylvia Winter, but other, other thinkers in this tradition where I went to Howard, right? Not saying again, Howard's not a magic elixir, but you know, you got to take like Black Diaspora when you, you know, these are like required courses, right? African-American history, one at least, got to take Black Diaspora. And I minored in African-American studies, right? So even though I was in the school of B, 
I minored in African-American studies. I minored in philosophy. So I did other classes. And I'm like, how am I 40-something years old? And I'm just now coming up on Sylvia Winter, right? Like, how did I miss that? It's amazing. Right? And, and I could go on and on and on with other thinkers, right? So it made me think about, again, this remembering that you highlight in the book. So I want to have you kind of talk about that through maybe a little bit of that anecdote that I just shared, and specifically with someone like a Sylvia Winter, who is just, again, beyond. And I can't believe she's not more known, if being known matters, right? Because that's kind of the point of the... <laughs> Of this whole conversation. Well, <laughs> sure. I think us knowing matters. So the marginalization of Sylvia Windsor happens in an academic context first for many for many different reasons. I think one of the main reasons, and this is just you know me riffing on my feelings right now, is her work just doesn't fit anything, right? How can you be a dancer, actress, playwright, novelist, <laughs> and then turn around <laughs> and deal with the basic fundamental building blocks of Western thought at the same time, and then say, well, if we understood the blues, <laughs> we would be freer. <laughs> or if you understood Rastafarianism. And all of these things that she's doing at as a part, these not these aren't separate in her mind, right? And so she doesn't fit. Doesn't fit in a fine arts program, doesn't fit in an English program, doesn't fit in a philosophy program. She can only be in black studies. Right. But her black studies project is not the black studies project of many of the men who are involved in black studies in this particular moment. And so that might have led to at least some of the uh, marginalization. But, you know, she actually does spend time not as a professor, but she visits Howard. And the only reason that she well, not the only reason, but one of the main reasons she visits Howard is because C.L.R. James happened to be there as a visiting professor. He himself is visiting <laughs> and he's only there because of the student movement. Again, sitting here in Montreal, there's a Congress of Black Writers in Montreal in 1968. C.L.R. James is there. Jimmy Garrett, who has this long history, comes up from D.C. They're trying to build an alternative called the Center for Black Education. They want C.L.R. James to come. C.L.R. James agrees. They see him in Montreal. He comes to D.C., moves to D.C., and spends almost a decade in D.C. living on 16th Street, developing these relationships to these young Black theorist scholars. And Sylvia Winter is in that orbit, even though she's on the West Coast at the time, eventually. So she spends time at Howard. And so she was known. She was a known quantity. Um, she had a relationship with people like, I don't know if you know, Ackland Lynch, a major figure in, D in the D.C. area. She even <laughs> has some correspondence with the great James Early, who is also a big uh, figure in the, in the radical movement, but also at the Smithsonian. And so she was known in those circles, but the other layer of her marginalization is, and this is going to be corrected soon, but nobody could figure out what to do with her book project, the book project that would have probably placed her on the scene in time um, in a big way. And that's the book that I talk about, the unpublished book that I talk about in Of Black Study, which is the book called Black Metamorphosis. Some people say it was too long. It's like 900 pages, <laughs> manuscript pages, uh, 900 plus manuscript pages. Some people say it was too complex because she's going after everything in that particular book. But had it come out in the time that was written, I'm wondering if more of us ended up knowing Sylvia Winter. Than but I will say this. The reason you see her on Twitter and you saw her on Twitter several years ago is because younger students are picking up on it. Younger graduate students are picking up on it and they're realizing, oh, this is something that we all need to know. She is just a giant. Like it's again, she's one of those folks. I read her stuff and it's dense and it it just blows you away, man. When I when I saw her in the table of contents, I was like, man, it, it took everything for me not to just jump to her. <laughs> Jump to her chapter. Let me just, let me just, you know, it wasn't just C.R.L. James that supported. It was also Cedric Robinson and Vincent Harding and many other um, Black Studies, male Black Studies figures that also supported uh, Sylvia Winter at the time. And probably I was include St. Clair Drake in that as well. So, yeah, it was, it was more balanced. 
then I probably gave credence to earlier, but it was also the sense that we don't know what to do with this. Like some of us don't know what to do with this. Yeah. That might be a metaphor for blackness in general, right? We don't know what to do with this, right? Like we, we like parts of it, but there are other parts we're not so sure. You know, I'm keeping an eye on the time. Like I said, I've said that before. I, man, we can go on and on and on. Before I get to the final two sections of the show, there's a piece of the book where you also talk about this notion, because again, this seemed like really relevant to me. It was one of those, let me stop reading moments, where you talk about the academy as stealing life versus a tradition of believing in life, as represented through this work, this work of Black studies, believing in life. And I wanted to give you an opportunity to, you know, really break down what that means and meant to you. Because if, if I, I'm not an academic, but I know many academics, right? Um, and I, I think about not just their their path as scholars and, and what's that, what's the, the burdens that that's filled with, but just the structure of the academy and universities, the, for everything from pay to hours to support to things seen and unseen that really resonated with me. And I want to give you a moment to kind of reflect on that. And then we'll get into the final two segments of the show, Off the Dome and The Drop. And then I'll get you out of here. You know, I think, I think about, my dissertation is dedicated to my great grandmother who at a very early age um, was shipped off to school, to a boarding school, one of the famous boarding schools that were created in the wake of the Civil War in the little country of South Carolina. And it was hard, I think, for her family to send her off and there's a story that corresponds to that. Her father wasn't, or maybe her grandfather wasn't allowed to see her off on the platform of the train. And this train stopped in her town in the middle of the night. And so he had to leave her by herself on this platform in order to catch this train, in order for her to get an education. And when she came out of that and had her own children and had her own grandchildren, she said that, I didn't want y'all to have to pick cotton. And so when I'm in these spaces, university, I'm thinking about that. I'm not thinking about prestige. I'm not thinking about recognition. I'm not thinking about the awards. I'm, not, I'm thinking about what would my great grandmother want me to be doing? What does it mean to not only honor her sacrifice, but also honor the commitment that she had to the next generation is not going to go through this. And whatever liberation means, it means not going through this, not having to do this. That's how I approach every question that is raised through my existence in this particular, in this world, but certainly in this profession. What does it mean for us to vindicate <laughs> our people in that way? And so if the question is how, that's how. That ancestors are with us. And we have to know that and act like we know it. Don't forget them. Yeah, absolutely, brother. Well, well said. And um couldn't think of a, of a better a better way to, to end this portion of, of the conversation um, and, and enough love and respect to your ancestors and all of our ancestors. We, we stand on the shoulders of giants, man. They're warriors in many ways that we can't even fathom. And we got to always remember that. So I'm going to get us into Off the Dome. And Off the Dome is just quick responses to some questions. In this case, two questions. The first one is is kind of, you know, unknown, right? <laughs> but I think it might lead into the kind of little bit of the answer that you just gave. As someone has a deeply, obviously, studied the the canon and the way in which Black um, black studies has, has developed and continues to develop, if you can collaborate with any thinker, you know, past, present, who would it be and why? Oh, Wow. This has to be off the dome, so I'm just going to go off the dome and say W.E.B. Du Bois. Just because he has, he was a difficult person, <laughs> meaning he wasn't necessarily the friendliest and the most social. And sometimes I'm like that. So I just want to just sit around and talk yeah. and engage him just to see, like, is this misanthropic reputation that you have, is it well earned? <laughs> is it like... <laughs> <laughs> are you are you are you a true member of the tribe? <laughs> so yeah, I, I 
Off the dome, I'm gonna, I'm gonna have to say Du Bois. Like, like, what are you, what are you really thinking about, yeah, man? I feel, yeah, <laughs> I feel you. On that. I love it. Are you part of the tribe? Are you grouchy like the rest of us? <laughs> I definitely respect that. And and my second um, off the dome question, second and last off the dome question, only two this this episode. You know, clearly it's it's homecoming season, which means a ton in in the HBCU community, which we've kind of talked about um, on the course of this show. So in keeping with homecoming season, what is the best homecoming and why is it Howard? <laughs> you know, Howard's the best homecoming because it has something for everybody. And so if you want to do something chill, just vibe out, there's going to be a space for you to go and do that. Or if you want to be completely and 100% over the top, <laughs> There's also a space for that. And if you have a family, there's a space for them. If you are single and on the prowl, Howard how Homecoming is a safe space for you as well. It's, like, it's, it's everything for everybody. And it's also, you're going to see something you've never seen before. And it's probably going to make you, I don't know, it, it can make you feel any number of things, but you're going to see something that you never expected to see. And, you know, it's an ongoing, nonstop party. And that party celebrates us, right? It's, it's, there is no minimization of who we are in that moment. There is no hiding behind the facade or, or the mask. We don't wear the mask at Howard Oak. Nah. <laughs> like, it's, it's just us. It's just us. And I think, you know, when I was away in graduate school, there was nothing that was going to stop me from not coming to Howard's homecoming. Because... The rest of the weekends of the of the fifty two, the other fifty two weekends or fifty one weekends, there was nothing like yeah. this happening in my life. <laughs> <laughs> I was not at, I was at Temple. Like it's like it's <laughs> I need I need Howard Homecoming. And I think that's the, the same vibe that people have now when they come back. It's like this is the momentum and the injection of blackness that I need in order to sustain myself. So I'm coming to Howard Homecoming. <laughs> it gets you through them other fifty one weeks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. But I must shout out, I have to shout out my home, South Carolina State University. I grew up on the campus of South Carolina State University. And what makes that homecoming experience so special is that there is space for our families and our extended families to reconnect. Our folk come back. And it's almost... In fact, my family has started doing family reunions at homecoming. Oh, that's awesome. So their homecoming... Yeah, their homecoming is this weekend, and you know, I regret not being there because to see is when we get to see the whole family. Well, you'll make it there. You'll make it there next year. <laughs> make up, make up for yeah. this one next year. Um, I want to, I want to <laughs> get to the final segment of the show, and it's called the drop. And the drop is just anything at all that we can share with our listeners. It doesn't have to be serious. It can be, but it doesn't have to be. So the drop is open season. To just recommend something. So my drop is is actually a show that's streaming on, I refuse to, it's on AMC plus, but it's also available on HBO max. I refuse to call that shit max. Like that's the stupidest thing ever. <laughs> and it's, and it's called gangs of London. I love a good grimy gangster show. And it took me a while to get to season two because I wasn't paying for AMC plus, but now that it's on HBO max, I'm like, okay, I can opt into that. Cause I get HBO max. Um, and it's grimy, it, but it's, it's well done. So it's not, deep from intellectual perspective, but if you just want to be entertained on some wild, you know, multicultural John Wick type shit, Gangs of London is going to be your, sh going to be your show. So that's my drop. So you're up brother. Okay, cool. I have so many. Let me, I have to do one. Well, give me at least two. <laughs> okay. Let's do two. If you're in um, New York city, uh, make sure you head over to the new music, to the new exhibit. Um, Henry Taylor B-side. I really, 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 really um, highly recommend this exhibit. Pay whatever they're charging or go in the free days, wherever it is. It's at the Whitney. Um, but this brother who is from the West Coast really sees us. His art really sees us. And it's us. When I say us, it's not an attempt to be high art. It's not an attempt to so mirror so the, the European standards of artistic you know, <laughs> approaches. It's really us in his art. And I'm really struck by that. And and I'll also say for my second drop, it's a music, a musical one. The music of the 
alto saxophonist Emmanuel Wilkins. Everybody needs to be listening to him right now. His latest album is called The Seventh Hand. But his music, he's, you know, in his mid-20s, brilliant, brilliant, brilliant composition, um, composer. But yeah, Emmanuel Wilkins and Henry Taylor are my two drops. Oh, that's awesome, man. You gave me, you gave me something to go to and something to listen to. So that that is awesome. You know, Joshua, I want to I want to thank you so much for for joining me on the deep dive. This is a a great conversation. The book again of Black Study, a necessary volume. Like this is a necessary work for for anyone interested in life. I'll put it like that. You interested in life and understanding it, read this book. Thank you so much for being on a deep dive. Love this conversation. And when I get down to DC, we got we to gotta get together when I'm on campus next and chop it up in person. Absolutely. It's such a pleasure. And thank you again, thanks again for celebrating, reading, engaging my work. It's much appreciated. Thank you, brother. Keep doing it. We need minds like you to fight the fight. You can listen to The Deep Dive via Apple Podcasts and our website, thedeepdivepod.com. Download, subscribe, listen, and share. If you like what you're hearing and enjoy what me and the team are putting together, then leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. You can follow me on Twitter via at FarFlungPhil. To all my listeners, wherever you are in the world, I thank you. See you on the other side.